Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode, I'm in Singapore for the return of the F1 night race. It's early afternoon on a humid race day with some decent rain clouds moving in. Now, there's no cars on track just yet, but an Aussie has kindly come in to work early to chat with me. He's the sports medical car driver, a role that he shares during the season, given that there are more than 20 races for the title held all over the world. It's a bit ironic that this former racer now pilots what is kind of a first responder F1 ambulance. That's because Carl Reindler survived one of the biggest fireball crashes in supercars history. You'll hear his vivid recollections of that day a little later and the emotional toll it took on family. Carl's story shouldn't be just defined by that incident. He's an Australian champion in Formula 3, did the hard yards chasing an international career in single-seaters and raced against some great names while doing that and he represented Australia in A1GP. He's the first to admit that the supercars chapter isn't brimming with stats and trophies. With hindsight, we'd probably all like the chance to do a few things in life differently and he opens up on career moves that he thought was the right call at the time but it didn't turn out that way. Stopping isn't easy for racers, but Carl has found a mixture of ways to stay involved, including driving standards advisory roles in race control at national meetings back home and driver coaching too. His demeanour is perfect for that. He also has a serious appreciation and understanding of the training and athletic side, in part from being surrounded by some high achievers in sport. His good mate is Olympian Steve Hooker, who won gold in the men's pole vault in Beijing in 2008. And Carl's now wife, Elise, beat the world's best to win gold in the sailing at those games as well. This is an easy conversation, thanks to Carl's trademark smile, which seems to ooze through the microphone and his way with words. It's also aided by the good time the Aussie contingent has had here in Singapore from Reminiscing about Carl borrowing a colleague's mower in Melbourne and being caught on CCTV doing it. Looked like a story from a current affair. And he is the only one of us bold enough to ask Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas for a selfie. He got it, and it is a beauty. The boy from West Australia's going all right. I'd love to start these conversations with a little bit of life and time where you grew up. We know that you grew up in Western Australia, and there's a bit of racing passion in the family you've even had the chance to race with your brother at times haven't you uh yeah that's uh, absolutely true um my dad used to compete himself in fact you probably don't know this but my dad used to own alan moffat's old daytona left-hand drive rx7 so i grew up with this obnoxiously loud uh peripheral port 13b mazda rx7 in the backyard they do laps around the block to tune it at 10 o'clock at night and wake up not only our neighborhood but the next neighborhood over um so that's i guess where the initial bug came from was uh was from dad that car is still i think in a museum in perth as it finished the race am i right um I'm not too sure. Um, Dad sold it regretfully. It's probably one of the most regretful sales. Uh, if, if only he knew 
um, you know, the, the demand for, for those heritage um, heritage race cars now. But um, yeah, so that's, I guess that's um, where it all started. Uh, I used to go up to then Wanneroo Raceway. Now, uh, well, went to Barbagel. I think it's gone back to Wanneroo Raceway now. Um, just kicking around as a kid with my brother and sister. Uh, we got into go-karts uh, from a young age. And, and it's such a great family sport. Um, that's what I, some of my best memories, I think, are just touring up and down the state in WA, going to somewhat exotic locations in the far north, the far south, um, you know, out to Kalgoorlie. Just with the family, mum and dad. Dad had no idea what he was doing on the tools. Um, <laughs> pretended. No, he didn't even pretend, actually. And, yeah, competing with um, my brother and sister. And and then you're right, yeah, I did actually race with my brother in a mini challenge car at Barbagello Raceway until he binned it at turn seven. But, um, yeah. Hello, Chris, if you're listening. Um, now, uh, can we get to where this became obsession for you and you had this beautiful kind of nice almost placid nature out of the out of the car but I, I sense you this competitive almost feisty person when the when the helmet goes on is that a fair judgment yeah I you know what it's like with with us drivers if I can still call myself uh, that I have hung hung the helmet up professionally but um, yeah I think I, I loved it from a young age. I used to, like a lot of guys, stay up late at night. It was, it was the special thing to do with Dad on a Sunday night, stay up late to watch the Grand Prix. Um, and we committed to hire karting from a really young age. I was probably six, six years old. We had to put wooden blocks on the pedals so that I could, I could <laughs> reach it. But th- back then it was all about just, just having some fun, um, having, a, having two siblings, especially a younger brother that was very, um, you know, He's one of those gifted athletes. No matter what he did, he was good at it. And um, being the younger brother, we, we got very competitive. It didn't matter what it was. It was, you know, running to the top, uh, top of a flight of stairs. It'd be elbows out, dirty tactics, and um, doing what we could to, to beat each other. Um, but the actual turning point for me was, was a guy by the name of Stephen Jones. Uh, I went to school with him, uh, and he, he got into the sport, and he was really quick straight out of the gate. And it, it, it got under my skin that this guy jumped into the sport so quickly and, and was competitive. And um, it probably instigated this, this fire in me, this competitiveness that, um, that I didn't realise existed. And uh, once you've got it and you, you, know, you know how to kind of channel that competitiveness, it's, um, you know, there's no turning back. How did it go from becoming this childhood obsession to ultimately occupation? And where was that sort of decision made was it a high school thing where you went this is all I want to do I'm not I mean forget banking or whatever the hell you might have been considering what were you considering <laughs> it's a tricky one to answer because it's it's not like a defining point in time it sort of transitions to it you're, you're out there having fun but the idea of being a, a professional race car driver seems so unrealistic when you're 13 or 14 years old but I, I do remember sitting at school um you know, there were, there were subjects I enjoyed, but the ones I didn't enjoy, I'd have a you know a go kart magazine hiding behind, and I'd be reading all the the latest news and who was winning what. Um, and I think it was when I I think I must have made a decision with Dad. I remember having a bit of a D and M on new, on a New Year's Eve about you know whether we have a go at this or not. And uh, Dad said he's willing to support it, um, lean on lean on friends, and uh, see if we can make it work and, and have a red hot go. And I reckon I would have been probably the tail end of year 11 heading into year 12 but but he said you, you have to focus on school as well you've got to do it properly I don't want you to be one of these guys that end up with you know no other skill sets outside of motorsport which is probably you know fantastic advice in hindsight 
So I stuck out year 12, um, started doing some testing in uh, F3 uh, and a bit of Formula Ford with Brett Lupton up at Barbagello. Just trying my hand at a few different things. And it was probably at that point I thought, you know what? I, I, I love this sport so much. I can't think of anything else you know, other than family and friends that, that I love so much. And um, I tell you what, it's easy when you love something to, you know, p- to pursue it and go through the grind. Uh, everyone talks about sacrifice. I don't think there's actually that much sacrifice. Everyone talks about it, but what are you actually sacrificing? Going out and, you know, getting, getting drunk with mates on weekend. I was, I was out there, you know, traveling the world, uh, driving race cars. So I don't, I don't understand when people talk about sacrifice to, to be a professional athlete in your chosen sport. Um, so yeah, I committed to F3 and, uh, you know, there were certainly trials and tribulations along the way. I had a very an enormous accident in a Formula V. I had to do Formula V to get my license to race in a Formula 3, um, but started doing quite well and loved the, the tactics and the strategy with Formula V. The race craft that you learn in a category like that, it's it, like Formula Ford as well, it's just unbelievable. But I got down to the last race of the season. I, I thought we, we might as well finish the season off. We're looking good for, uh, for a state championship here. And... I remember it was the last lap of the last race of the last round of the season going into the last corner. You couldn't, couldn't have scripted it. And um, I'm overtaking someone, got the toe over the top of the hill and uh, gone to pass him around the outside and he's gone left hand down, turned into me and I've rolled five times, um, landed flat on the belly of the car and... Being a space frame chassis, what I mean by space frame, it's um, you know it's got it's 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 tubing. Uh, it's not a it's not a, a monocoque uh, carbon fibre tub. So you've got bar work that uh, you know that your legs can rattle around and hit. So I've I've ended up with a lot of injuries to my legs, a lot of lacerations. It was quite a serious accident. At one point, I, I heard actually it sounds dramatic, but I heard the word amputation mentioned they just didn't know how serious the injuries actually were at this point i didn't realize i'd actually fractured my spine as well i had a compression fracture so this was a major probably the first of many major setbacks that you encounter in a career of motorsport um and that was again another defining point for me because something like that could deter you from ever going back into the sport or for me it had the opposite effect it it, you know i had three months off uh, I was lucky it was a pretty minor uh, compression fracture. I didn't need to wear any bracing, but I had to take it easy. And you have three months to sit around and, and you know, question what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's important. Um, do you want to continue pursuing this? And, and, of course, I got to the end of that three months of rest and recovery and thought, no, nah, it's going to take a lot more than that to deter me from, uh, from pursuing the sport that I love so much. It sounds heavy that accident can we just underscore your determination to come back here uh, that you've just described uh, cam vanderdungen who's a, a friend and colleague of, of both of ours talks about you turning up just a few months later i think to what was probably then a confederation of australian motorsport training camp and you were bitterly determined not to miss that opportunity am i right uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I'd almost forgotten about that camp, so I was invited based off the purely based off the results from the previous year. Um, I think my dad tried to talk me out of doing it because I wasn't probably a hundred percent yet after that big accident. Uh, even Cam, I think, was was a little hesitant. Should we be allowing this guy in off the back of a, um, a spinal injury? But um, yeah, it 
I wanted to go. I think that's one thing I've always done along the way in the sport is when, when an opportunity has passed across my desk, I've whether I felt I was up to it or not physically or otherwise, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go at this. And, and it's amazing how one thing leads to another and opens doors here and there. And um, it's only something I've sort of realised or reflected on in the last few years. I've, I've had a bit of a yes attitude or can-do attitude. You know what, I'll, I'll give this a go. Um, it's amazing. You know, I feel very lucky with the opportunities I've had, but I think a lot of it's to do with saying, you know what, I'm just going to give this a shot. Um, if it works out, it works out. It doesn't. I'm going to learn a heck of a lot from it. CV says F3 Rookie of the Year in Australia in 03. You would win the title in Formula 3 in 2004 for, for Team BRM in a Dallara. If I've done my homework right, I think it was something like 11 podiums that year. Just an epic, epic season for you. How did you stitch that together? And kind of it is with a little tinge of sadness for me that it was the final year before it became the Australian Drivers' Championship too, wasn't it? Yeah, I missed out on that one, um, the, the Gold Star. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a great year. Uh, it came down to the last race of the season. Um, it, it, was, it was a good lineup of people. I think, uh, I think you know, Caruso raced the previous year. We had Chris Gilmore, who still jumps in the odd uh, race count. It came down between, uh, to, to between uh, Chris and I at the Gold Coast 600 event. Um, it, was, it was the IndyCar event back then, actually. So it was the long circuit. And um, cool cars too, mate. Those F3 cars. They? they are some of the best cars I've, I've ever driven. They are the, the perfect race car, just about. There, I, I loved racing in supercars for the for the stint I had there, but I, I still gravitate back towards these open wheelers. And in a Formula Three, it's it's the proving ground for. You know, we're here in pit lane at Singapore at the moment for you know, for F1, and there's a reason for it. They are. They don't have a huge amount of power, so you make a mistake in that car and you know about it. You are punished for making a mistake in those cars. So you have to have a lot of finesse with them, and uh, it, it's a great, great education. I, I really miss those cars. And back then, it was an H pattern as well. No fancy paddle shift, not even sequential. So I remember the bruised knuckles you'd get on the, on the tub. Um, they were physical to drive. At the end of that season, there's an opportunity to go to Bahrain for the F3 Super Prix. Is that really kind of when racing overseas and, you know, chasing that dream kind of kicked into gear for you? Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, the opportunity came about. It was sort of an unofficial junior world championship in a way, uh, this Bahrain F3 Super Prix. Uh, it was sort of invitation only, um, but it, the idea behind it is that the best Formula 3 drivers from all the championships around the world, which were pretty much like for like in uh, rules and regulations. The tyres were, uh, were different, but uh, the chassis were all the same. Engine choices were the same. Um, so we, we, I think there were something like, uh, I reckon, 35 of the best young drivers in the world. And I just, fresh off the back of winning an Australian championship, feeling quite confident, and I got... Um, blitzed over there it was it was eye-opening just the level up from australian motorsport at the time to world-class motorsport and look i was racing against lewis hamilton and nico rosberg ramon grosjean was there uh, kobayashi was there as well some some guys that you know i reckon 90 percent of the okubitsa i think was there yeah. too so 90 percent of the grid have gone on to have very successful careers in motorsport in their respective um disciplines so 
Um, I remember it rained and they only get four days of rain a year in Bahrain and we got, we got half of them. First. So it was bucketing with rain. I was with a Swiss racing team and uh, even just working with a foreign team, you know, we, we didn't have a, I think I finished 12th or 13th out of the 30 something cars that were there. But the, the education, I, one thing I, yeah, for any young drivers out there that are listening, I always, I recommend being, the value and being slightly out of your depth at every stage, you should always be challenged. If you're comfortably winning in a championship, you haven't moved on soon enough. I think the, the education you get from jumping in the, the deep end, being in a, a competitive space is, um, is so helpful, especially when you're trying to fast track your career. I think young Aussies are on the back foot as it is coming from Australia. You can't, like in New Zealand, um, you, you can jump into a Formula V at 12 years old, a Formula Ford at 12 years old over there. So you're a little hamstrung in Australia when you can't get into these cars. You're still racing go-karts until you're 15 years old. So, yeah. Um, Plus the depth of competition internationally there. Yeah, the depth of competition was, was a big part of it. Um, loved that experience, uh, meeting all of these, these guys. And uh, I, again, it, it was a setback in a way. I, I learned a lot from it, but I, I was demoralised how just how competitive these guys were the the risks that they were willing to take in wet conditions in dry conditions that that i i guess hadn't been exposed to up until that point it was almost gentlemanly in australia in comparison um i remember being squeezed up um in practice let alone qualifying or the race um squeezed up against the pit wall um wheel to wheel just it was everyone for themselves and hard racing yeah yeah on the CV, mate, you got to race um, in Macau with some of the names that you've rattled off there as well. Romain Grosjean, Lucas Degrassi, even Seb Bedel and, and uh, Robert Kubica was there. For lots of races, that's a, that's a big tick, mate, a, a, an unforgiving place, kind of legendary in this part of the world we are, where we are right now. Uh, pretty amazing to go there and, and, and get to race. That was one of the greatest circuits. It's probably the best circuit on the planet, I think, because it is so challenging. Bathurst, absolutely, not taking anything away from that. But I have to say, Macau is so unforgiving. You, To, to paint a picture, you, it's the, the longest straight. It's, uh, it's over a mile long, the straight. So you need to trim back all the aero on the car to have the straight line speed so you can actually be competitive and race. But obviously, by trimming back the aero, you lose all the grip. When you, you go up the side of a mountain go back down the side of the mountain and just armco everywhere there's no runoff areas we've seen some enormous accidents there over the years it's but it's last bastion stuff isn't it it, it is so um it, it's it's unforgiving and it's that is yeah i mentioned the the bahrain race is sort of becoming the the unofficial junior world championship well macau has always been that for uh, for f3 so you're right there was a uh, i think sebastian vettel finished third that year um Kibitza, I think, was on the podium. Degrassi, Degrassi won the race, and uh, I went there with the goal. I, I wanted experience. The intention was to go back to Macau a second year and have a, a red hot go at it. I was with a great team with Alan Docking Racing. We didn't have the latest and greatest um, Honda engine uh, that the, the front runners had, but for me, it was about. I set the goal of finishing every single lap of every single session, and we ended up finishing. I think it was twelfth off the top of my head. Um, but we did exactly that. We, we finished. I was the only driver that didn't, you know, connect with the wall. Uh, so I think it was the perfect education to go back the following year. But I never, 
if there's any regrets I have, I wish I got to go back to Macau because it's just such a such a special place. How do you compartmentalise that time with Alan Docking Racing now? Because there's lots of drivers, Aussies, that have gone through that that path and and worked with him in the UK. Um, for example, at this stage of your career, trying to stitch this together financially, I wouldn't imagine that was an easy prospect either. It's one of the hardest things coming from uh, from Australia. We we didn't have a lot of financial backing. We were on a shoestring budget compared to some of these young European drivers. Um, we missed all of the pre-season testing when I committed to British F3. In fact, I missed the first couple of races of the season. So my first race in British F3 in 05 was at Monza. So it's British F3, but we ventured to the Nürburgring. We did Po Street Circuit in the south of France. Um, Spa, we did Spa, which uh, was one of the best experiences of my life there. Mega. Mega. <laughs> um, so... Doco, as he's affectionately known as, was he looks after young Aussies. Um, he did a, you know, he did a great deal for us. We we didn't have the best of equipment, and I wish I wish we were able to tackle it properly. Do the you know thirty days of preseason testing that some of the other guys were doing, throwing you know thirty forty sets of tyres at it. But I, I still don't regret going over there i think any young aussie that goes over to europe no matter what they ultimately end up doing whether they come back to australia and commit to supercars you you just learn so much from that experience you i was 19 i think when i moved over and you know left home literally gone from living with mum and dad at 19 to living in a foreign country and at that stage there were no systems set up to assist young from from the sport point of view well from sporting point of view but from a from a life point of view you you mentioned the the program that cam vandenungen ran for uh for motorsport australia then cams yeah there was some education about nutrition and uh, sports science and things like that but now young aussies go over and yeah, there's there's hubs that, that are set up and, and good education and people to kind of look after them so they can really focus on the sport. But the one thing when you move to Europe or the UK in my, um, uh, for, for me, is you, uh, you are living and breathing the sport every single day of your life. You wake up and you're thinking about it. You go to bed, you're thinking about it. And I think that's, that's a, great, it's a great thing um, to kind of progress you know your, um, you know your skill sets, and uh, yeah, everything you do is is working towards better performance on track. And uh, that was neat. I, I I lived in Silverstone Village, so I'd wake up to the sound of Formula Ones, the V10s back then, testing at the circuit. The, um, it was a pretty good alarm bell. Never got old. And <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a great experience. We'll get to your lovely wife a little bit later on, who I've had the chance to work with over time in, in elite sailing. She's a, a gold medal winning um, sailor, represented Australia. You have represented Australia as well for, for A1 Grand Prix. Rookie driver at Laguna Seca. You got the chance to progress in 06, 07 to be lead driver for the team and picked up that podium in China. I absolutely loved that category those cars they were so different from the f3 that i was used to i spoke about the finesse required to drive an f3 the a1 gp was the first car i drove where you had to grab it by the scruff of the neck and and just drive the hell out of it i can't remember how much horsepower they had they're they pretty reasonable wasn't it 550 550 horsepower um they were a bit heavier than the f3 as well but they had that enormous very this famous and very wide rear tire they sort of looked similar to the 
Formula One cars from the 70s with that big rear tyre. It's the first time I got, um, got used to tyre blankets as well. We had uh, tyre warmers. So you'd, you'd go out of the gate at a circuit you'd never been to before and the degradation of those tyres was so high. I remember going to Bruno in Czech Republic and my very first lap on that circuit was my fastest lap for all of practice because of the degradation, having never seen the circuit before. Um, world-class drivers, uh, great championship. We went to some, some amazing circuits. I got to work with Ryan Briscoe for the first time. I, I learned a lot from working with Ryan, who I think is you know, the utmost professional in, in everything that he does. Um, so he drove it at Zandvoort. He got a podium at Zandvoort. I was there as the rookie driver. It was inspirational to just be in that environment, uh, to be rubbing shoulders with Ryan and, and learning from him. And then uh, Ryan had some other uh, races that conflicted with A1GP. So in the end, I, I got the call up to, um, to race. I think it was the Czech Republic that uh, was my first event. Did the Chinese race as well, the Australian um, uh, round of it, the New Zealand round, which was at uh, Taupo. And they were hugely physical cars to drive uh, because because of the mechanical grip that they had. The aero was a bit agricultural, just fun cars. Um, we, we got the podium in China, which was pretty special. That was a funny weekend in itself because they had received the FIA circuit approval. But it was in Beijing. It was a street circuit. It was a street circuit in Beijing in 2007. Uh, we did so many fun activities uh, off the track as well. But we, we got onto the circuit and everyone was concerned about this hairpin corner, whether the cars could physically get around it with their corner corner radius. We got to the first practice session and there was a car park down at this this hairpin. No one had actually sat down to do the, the maths on, on whether the cars could make it around. So they had to go back to the drawing boards, change the circuit, get FIA approval. And uh, eventually we got back out there. Um, but it was all a bit rough around the edges because they also had manhole covers, these 20 kilo manhole covers that were lifting, that the tack welds that they put on were pretty dodgy. I remember there were no there were no crowds for for practice or suction qualifying. being sucked up off the road. Yeah. The the, uh, the ground effects of the car sucked one of these uh, manhole covers off the ground, over the fence and into the grandstand that happened to be empty. And I don't think it ever hit the news. They they tried to sweep it under the carpet, but it was um, it was so rough around the edges. But some of these experiences all over the world in Indonesia. Ryan raced in Indonesia. Um, Durban, the street circuit in Durban was one of the coolest street circuits I've ever raced on. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. I got to work with Ian Dyke, who I'd competed against in F3 as well, and he uh, ended up taking the reins and um, continuing the championship. Such a fun car. The uh, off-track stuff as well as the on-track stuff, that, that you know, they looked after us. The parties were fun, the activities were fun, but the, the cars were just mega. Shortly after this period, there is an appearance at the Daytona 24-hour in 2008 and the commencement of a move into into Super 2, what was known at the time as the as the Fujitsu series. Was there a conscious switch from you here? Did you think, right, the, the open-wheel dream, I, I, I've gone as far as I can with this, um, you know, without some uh, incredible backer or a massive amount of funding, I, I have to switch tact here. And where, where did you kind of make that decision? Exactly as you say, Rusty, that was a... A really tough pill to swallow at the end of um, the stint in A1GP and the second season I did in British F3. Uh, learned a lot, but as I said, we didn't have the funding to do it properly in the first place. And uh, money talks in, in this sport, as, as we all know. So I had to make the, the really hard decision. And it, to me, it felt like I was giving up on 
giving up on a, on a dream. Uh, it, for me, the dream was always Formula One. And we discussed what, what our options might be. This is, this is with your dad or this is... You know, with, yeah. with dad, who effectively was, was my manager at the time. And we decided to make the transition to touring car racing. Uh, didn't really... And it's such a different world. I felt like... I almost felt like I was starting from scratch in a way. So it was a good introduction doing the Daytona 24-hour race. Um, had a couple of great teammates there. We finished the race, which, which for a 24-hour race is an achievement in itself. Um, it, it all went. We qualified third in the um, GT category. There were two categories back then. There was the uh, the prototype category and the GTs, and we were in a Pontiac GTOR, which was it's a Monaro basically. Fun car. It was a pretty agricultural car as well, and. I remember going over to Daytona and doing the test day in January and then back there for the 24-hour. And I remember Diego, uh, my teammate, started the race from, from P3, which is uh, great starting position for a big race. And two laps in, we've lost our bonnet. The bonnet clips weren't done up properly. <laughs> and poor Diego has come back to the pits with his bonnet, you know, dangling around. I don't know how he even made it back, but that was the start of all these issues we had with the car mechanic mechanical issues but it's my only first and only ever um 24 hour race and it's kind of like a, a choose your own adventure story you you duck off to the camper van and try to get some sleep which is almost impossible with the ad- adrenaline that's going through your system you come back and you need an update of what's happened in the last hour um so much can can change so quickly i got to finish the race so it was pretty special to see the checkered flag after 24 hours and i think i had quite possibly the best sleep of my life off the back of that race. It was, um, it was a good introduction, very different car to supercars, but it was still a, a great introduction to what was my, uh, the start of my supercar career. Stint in sedan racing, as you and I talk, sadly has been uh, hit by a, uh, by a hurricane over there, but that's an amazing race that I've been to today, Tone of 24 hour, very, very cool, mate. Can you feel the energy from Carl through the microphone? Because I can. Up next, we head to Queensland for the start of Carl's supercar adventure. Take it away, Rusty. Let's talk supercars. Can you recall for our audience where you were, first time you set foot in one and and what it was like to drive, the experience, the feeling that it left you with? I I remember exactly where it was. Uh, My brother and dad we're uh, we're both there as well queensland raceway with uh with dick johnson dick was at the track as well in fact he had a drive on the same day uh will davison was out there and uh adrian burgess who i knew very well from uh, my stint in f3 in the uk he was i actually tested with carl in motorsport um where i actually met um alan vandermover which we'll probably talk about alan yes. i think a little bit later um so the introduction came through ATB, um, Adrian Burgess, and we were invited to this test day at QR. And I remember the first time, it was on the 17-inch wheel back then, 2008. Well, no, it must, might have even been the end of 2007 that I actually, yeah, I think it was the end of 2007. And I remember my first feedback was, feels like it's oversteering through, through every corner. And, and Adrian went on to say well i think you'll probably find it's actually just the sidewall of the tire moving around i never experienced something so heavy and 
I've used the word agricultural before for open wheelers, but nothing quite like this. This this tank, it's it was sort of it felt unrefined in a way compared to the perfect purpose-built open wheelers that I was used to, and I felt in a way out of my depth. Or, or it just felt foreign to me, but at the same time, really enjoyed the experience. And my brother had a steer as well. He was sort of not committed to a, a career in motorsport, but still loved it like I did. Um, ultimately, he chose to go down a different pathway. But uh, it was it was just a really nice experience to work with Dick on that day, who um, you know was one of the love, loveliest guys up and down the the grid, in my opinion. And um, I really, really loved the experience and I thought, you know what, it was a tough pill to swallow to, to walk away from the open wheeler career, but I can see myself really, really enjoying supercars and touring cars moving forward. Let's talk a little more about that. In your first season, I think, eighth that year, but importantly, you, you chalked up some very big milestones, mate. The Mike Cable Rookie of the Year is one that, that springs to mind. And you look at the list of names that have won that uh, that title along the way, Marcus Ambrose, Mark Winterbottom, James Courtney, Chas Mostert, Scott McLaughlin. Very cool company to be recognised in that regard. Yeah, I. it was a bit of a surprise. I, I didn't think, you know, I think as a, as a professional uh, athlete, and we are athletes, uh, I think motor racing drivers don't give themselves enough credit. Um, yeah, we work hard off, off the track as well as on, and it is physical. Um, we're our own biggest critic and I had a good season um, it was a very competitive field I think John O. Webb was in there Slady was in there as well um, Reynolds I uh, can't remember who, who ended up winning it but when uh, I got called and, and told I'd won the Mike Cable Rookie of the Year award I, um, I was blown away it was and then I, I, looked, I didn't know much about the, the award or Mike Cable and then obviously did a bit of research to realise who had won it previously so that was um that was a nice, that was a nice thing to win at the end of end of that first season, and I also had my very first Bathurst 1000 experience that year as well, which was a very it was unusual circumstances. I wasn't planning on doing. I felt I didn't feel I was ready to tackle a Bathurst 1000. Um, some people, I mean, sometimes it's good to jump in the deep end, as I mentioned before. Sometimes you need to do do the time before you you know tackle a, a race like that. And I have the hugest amount of respect for, for that race and that circuit. It, it demands so much respect. And we see some, some people go out and bin it in the first practice session. And I, I didn't, didn't want to be that guy. But uh, I got a call from the Ford Rising Star racing team. Grant Daniel was supposed to be driving with Michael Patrizzi. He'd had the monster truck crash, hadn't he, from memory? Yeah. Exactly. So Grant had been driving a monster truck and had a similar compression fracture to what I'd had and was told you're not allowed to race. So two, I reckon it was less than two weeks out from the Bathurst 1000, I get a call saying, hey, are you free and, uh, and would you be interested in racing at the Bathurst 1000? And of course, well, I thought I, I didn't think I was quite ready to tackle the race um, the most famous race in the Southern Hemisphere. I, I thought, you know what, going back to what I said before, it's one of those opportunities that's come, come by my desk. How can you say no to that? So I jumped in and um, we finished the race, which, which was a good start, but it was a, a real roller coaster ride. I, I loved that event, that experience. It was a satellite operation to what was FPR back then, or ProDrive. And um, so we got to meet some of their, their engineers. We had some good data. Um, 
it, it was it was a really great event. Learned a lot. Loved driving that car, and uh, yeah, fell in love with the mountain as we all do. You can't you can't not when you drive around that place. It seems in that little window like it's almost a, a meteoric rise to the the main game, relatively speaking. You get. Your first full-time season with Brad Jones Racing in 2010, how did that opportunity come about? And did you feel like you were ready at that stage? Were you chomping at the bit? I'm not sure you ever feel like you're quite ready, but uh, how, I guess how it came about, I remember meeting Brad Jones uh, at Barbagello Raceway for the supercar round in, I guess it's typically in May, first weekend of May every year. And... Um, He'd been watching some of the, the results in that um, development series year. And we continued the conversations. And I guess it, towards the end of the year, we were, we were getting closer and closer. We had a couple of sponsors on board that we were able to bring to the table. And Kim Jones had been working on Fair Dinkum Sheds in the background. So it was uh, Kim that brought Fair Dinkum Sheds to the background. I met the Fair Dinkum people and... It worked out. It was a it was a great relationship. Love those guys still. And uh, yeah, I I thought well we were planning on a two year arrangement in the uh, development series and or Fujitsu series back then. And again, we thought well the opportunity is here to jump into the main game. I'm probably not quite ready yet. I haven't done the time in uh, the second tier championship. But heck, let's just let's just give this a go. And I I loved working with BJR. Um, I had JR, Jason Richards, as, uh, as a teammate. I had Bridie as a teammate. Um, sorry, I, we missed a year here, 2009. We all but took the year off in 2009. We, well, walk me through that. Why? It was financial. We, we just didn't have the funding to, to, continue, to continue to do a second season. I did one race at Sandown in, uh, in the development series, but Bridie actually um, needed a teammate in the Fujitsu car, which was run by Stone Brothers as a satellite operation. Um, Dave Stewart was the engineer, and and that so that was my second. We've uh, we've skipped ahead, but the um, that was a fantastic experience. Bridie is one of the cleverest blokes up and down pit lane. He's he's amazing, and working alongside him was one of the best things I could have done. Um, that, that year, he won races that year in, in that car, working with Dave Stewart. Um, we had the Phillip Island race instead of the Sandown 500 that year. Um, the Bathurst race, it was a wild ride in itself because Bridie uh, binned it, turn one, lap one of the, of the big race. I remember sitting there in pit lane, you know, head in my hands thinking, it's, <laughs> we're done, we're all over. They dragged him out. So we were a lap down on lap two for the big race and um, we thought well we're just going to be circulating we're just making up numbers now and then Dave Stewart I remember sitting in the pit lane waiting for my stint and it starts raining and there's panic station safety car Dave looks at me and goes Carl would you be, be would you be prepared to go out on slick tyres in the wet at the Bathurst 1000 <laughs> <laughs> and I felt sick I thought you're kidding me. Like, this is my second Bathurst 1000 and you're about to send me out on slicks in the wet. I said, this is, he said, Carl, this is the only way I can see us making up the lap that we're, we're down. Um, he said, we're doing it. He made the decision, put your helmet on, Bridie's pitting this lap. No time to prepare, which is probably the best thing. You know, I'm, I'm an overthinker, so <laughs> just jump in and, and deal with it. And I remember jumping in. I 
could barely keep up with a safety car. It was that treacherous out there. It, it's, it's tricky enough around the mountain in dry conditions on a slick tyre, let alone wet tyre in the wet, let alone a slick tyre in the wet. But it worked out. The track dried out. I remember you know, passing guys around the outside at McPhillamy on the, feeling like a superstar on my slick tyres while they were trying to keep their wet tyres cool. Everyone else had to pit for wets. We, and there was another safety car. We got our lap back and we ended up finishing 11th in the race, which from where we were on turn one, lap one in the, uh, the sand trap was, uh, was a great comeback. But yeah, working with Bridie, Dave Stewart, um, love them both to bits. Still, uh, I work very closely with Dave Stewart um, currently. Still catch up with Bridie every so often. That was a great experience. And that, it, was, it was off the back of that um, experience that, that led to the Brad Jones Racing year in 2010. Awesome, mate. So can we skip ahead a little bit here in, in terms of... My question now really is about your first impressions of the main game. You detailed before about the Super Prix and the quality of the competition when you went to Bahrain that year, the step up from Australia to what it was like in in Europe. What was it like stepping from the second tier of supercars to the main game and how eye-opening was that? It was ruthless. I remember, again, transitioning from an open-wheeler background where you can't afford to bang wheels, although we still did in Europe. Um, I couldn't believe just how aggressive it was out there. Um, no, yeah, no love, no love lost at all. And the physicality of it, I think, was the other thing that I really struggled with, the heat in the car. I remember the first Adelaide 500 or Clipsal 500 back then, and I, I, I barely got through it. Uh, I was a fit guy. I took my fitness seriously. Um, very seriously. In fact, the year off in 2009, I you know, started competing in triathlons to channel my competitiveness and qualified for age group uh, world, world championship, which conflicted with the Phillip Island race, unfortunately. But I took my fitness seriously and I didn't feel equipped or ready for, for supercars. Um, so that was, it felt like a baptism of fire in a way. And uh, I just felt like every weekend for the first half of that season was, was, a, was a real struggle um, mentally, physically. And I just felt that I didn't understand how to extract the most out of a supercar. It felt like the window for setup was quite small. When you're in the window and everything was working, um, it felt great. But trying to get it into the window as quickly and efficiently as possible in those early practice sessions, I always felt like I was one step behind. So we'd quite often the final session on track for the weekend, the final race was the best, you know, best the car felt. you'd unlocked it by that stage. We'd unlocked it, but it was too little too late. So it took a long time to really get my head around the supercar, what was important for setup, what we were chasing. And um, eventually um, you get your head around it and you understand what you like in the car. I had great teammates with, with JR and, and Bridie that year to, um, to lean on, but... Uh, that first year, just it felt like a real grind. Um, and then it was the second year with BJR. We actually started to make some headway and get some, you know, get some good results. Um, you know, qualifying was, a, was probably a weak point for me. And um, we had some good qualifying results. We qualified sixth at Barbagallo, fifth at Queensland Raceway. 
Um, good result at Sandown, I think, later that year. But trying to be... I, I think coming from an open-wheeler background, I didn't probably give supercars the respect it deserved at, in that first season and, or two seasons. Um, it is, in my opinion, the most competitive championship in the world, Formula One included. I, I look at that field. You look at the times. You, know, you go to a, a Simmons Plains, you have how many, you know, 24, cars, 24 yeah. cars separated by three-tenths of a second, four-tenths of a second. There's no championship in the world quite like it. So I, I don't think other championships around the world quite give supercars the respect it deserves in that regard. And, and, and the one round every year that it came to light was the Gold Coast 600 race when we had the internationals that, come, that came over that were, you know... Global, eyes wide open. Eyes wide open, superstars in their own right. Most of them had, you know, won major titles in, um, you know, world-class international championships and no one could believe just how... That was probably one of the best things supercars ever did to put it on the... It, it was on the world stage, but to really showcase how competitive it actually was. I, I love that event. Can we talk before we get to... Um Barbagallo 2011, mate, just spend a little bit of time on that. Can we just discuss that fitness you mentioned there a moment ago? Am I right in saying you did an event where you competed against Jensen Button as well? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I almost forgotten about that one. Uh, Jensen uh, was doing a training camp in, uh, in Perth. Uh, I was still living in Perth at the time. I moved to, to Melbourne in 2012. So it must have been 20, 2010, 2011 that Jensen came over and uh, he was into triathlons. He's still still into triathlons, as far as I'm aware. And uh, of course, Jensen rolls up to town. Uh, you, you dig deep, and you you're out there to, to beat him. And I, I think I beat him by it was like 50, 50 seconds overall. <laughs> he had my measure in the swim. I, I passed him on the bike, and uh, yeah, that, that healthy competition was there. But that was that was a really cool experience racing against him. Their competitive side doesn't take long to surface, no matter what the discipline. That's the end of part one of my podcast with racer-turned-F1 medical car driver Carl Reindler. Part two is in the library and ready to go right now, and you don't want to miss that one. The recollections of his supercar's crash are spine-tingling. The world-leading burn specialist he worked with, getting back on the horse, and a moment of realisation of the toll it took on family, plus the moves he made that... With the benefit of time, he'd do differently and the difficult decision to stop. 